Let's go to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Exodus 7, verses 1 through 7. Uh, today is uh, five years exactly since the very first time I preached here, uh, June 5th, 2016. Uh, so happy anniversary to us. Um, thank you all for the past five years for welcoming Chelsea and I. And a lot of y'all have been a lot of help to us, good help to us. Um, looking forward to the next, who knows how long. Forever. Um, Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Uh, stand when you've got it. We're going to cover Exodus chapter Exodus chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 today. Um, we're not going to read all of that. Uh, I'm not even going to walk through all of that. We're going to do a flyover of all of that. I think Exodus 6 through 11 are one um, section of the narrative that are meant to be read together and, and looked at together. So I don't want to break it up. I want to talk through it all together. And there are two summary statements in this uh, portion. So Exodus 7, what we're reading here, and at the end in Exodus 9, there's another summary statement where Moses is basically summarizing what happens in Exodus 6 through 11. So what we're about to read in these seven verses are a summary statement of this whole section. Um, Exodus chapter 7, in verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Underline that. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. That's, that's going to be important for us today as well. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them out, the people of Israel, from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Um, if we put a title on this or a theme, I want to uh, theme this hands, heads, and hearts. Uh, say that with me. Hands, heads, and hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, speak to us. Amen. You can, you can have a seat. So... A few years ago, um, my wife and I, we were walking through the mall um, down that corridor that leads to TJ Maxx and uh, Old Navy here in Joplin. And uh, beside us, there was this little toddler, maybe two years old, three years old, and he was running about 10 feet ahead of his mother. Um, and doing that toddler thing where they like waddle at like negative two miles an hour. And so he's like in front of his mother and he has this uh, sucker or some piece of candy in his hand and he loses his balance as he's running and he drops the piece of candy. And so he stops, looks at the piece of candy for a second and his mom's still about 10 feet away from him. And he bends down to pick it up. He picks it up. He puts it here. And from 10 feet behind, his mom yells, do not. <laughs> he picks this thing up. He looked at his mama. He grimaced, shoved the thing in his mouth, and runs in curt corners into Old Navy and hides from her. 
that that toddler that day, he told us the story of human sinfulness. Um, uh, The way he looked at his mother and processed her words and thought about what he was doing, that, that taught me that day that sometimes our disobedience is deliberate. There are times where I disobey God and after I sin or do what God has told me not to do, I look back and I think, what came over me? I don't know what happened. I seem to have been caught off guard. Sin just sumoplexed me and boom, here I am, fell in its trap. Then there are times where I know what I'm doing when I'm planning to do it. I know what I'm doing as I do it. And after I do it, I know what I did and how I did and how I thought about doing it. Uh, disobedience is deliberate sometimes. Um, to save you from the myth of a perfect pastor, I'll tell on myself first. There are times where I was just talking to Brock a few weeks ago and telling him there are times where I'll feel sin pulling on me from my heart. So I start to game plan or, or I start to move in this direction. And then uh, I sense the spirit prompting me in another direction. Or maybe the spirit will lay a scripture on my heart and say, go this other direction. And do you want to know how I meet the leadership of the spirit of God? I just say, Holy Spirit, you good. Take five on this one. Take a lunch break. I got this. I'm just going to go do this and come back when I'm done. I've successfully shut off the voice of God. Have you ever shut off the voice of God? This is this is where we find Pharaoh in chapter five. Chapter five, God sends Moses and Aaron to 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 Pharaoh to preach the famous sermon. Let my people go. The word of God came to Pharaoh and Pharaoh, instead of obeying, he deliberately disobeyed. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. Who is God that I should obey him? And instead of obeying God and letting the people go, Pharaoh disobeyed God and doubled down on their slavery. He, he took these people from using bricks to build to telling them, now you make your own bricks and build, and I'm going to beat you because it's taking you twice the time. He deliberately disobeyed God. He shut off the voice of God. That's chapter five. Move over into chapter six, and God starts to describe the response plan to Pharaoh's deliberate disobedience. You read the first eight or so verses of chapter six, you'll see that God uses the personal pronoun I 17 times. God says I in about eight verses. Five times God says I will in this response plan. God focuses the attention on himself. He makes himself the main actor in this response plan to make it clear that God personally responds to deliberate disobedience. Here's a newsflash, friends. The story does not end in you choosing to disobey God. He responds. He, 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 he interacts with you. So the question I want to ask today is how does God respond to my deliberate disobedience? That's the question I think that's being answered in Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, uh, 11. Um, and as I go forward, I just want to give you a, um, a precursor that this is not going to be an exhaustive list of how God responds. This is just what God shows us in this text here. Um, and this is a very specific word. Some of us are living in disobedience right now. And this applies to right now for some of us. Others, uh, others of us, those of us who are normal, are probably going to diso- deliberately disobey God within the next 24 hours. And this will apply to then. So the question I want to ask is, how does God respond to my deliberate disobedience? Uh, 
Um, the first way, the most simplest way to say this is God responds to deliberate disobedience by stretching out his hand. God stretches out his hand. You'll see this phrase come up over and over and over and over in this portion is God saying, I stretch out my hand. He said it in the portion we just read, I'll stretch my hand against Egypt. Um, the hand of God or the arm of God is a metaphorical way of uh, referring to God's sovereign ability. So some of you have heard me tell this story. Um, there's this little girl who would go to the grocery store with her mother. Um, and every time they would go to the grocery store, the cashier, he would uh, extend this uh, bucket of candy to the little girl and say, no, you go ahead, grab as much as you want and just take it home. And the little girl refused to put her hand in that bucket and grab that candy, would say no every time and force that man to put his hand in the bucket and grab candy for her. So she does this for weeks. And then finally, one day it happens again. And her mother looks at her and says, now, girl, you put your hand in that bucket and get candy and stop putting this nice man through all that trouble. The little girl looks up at her mommy and says, but mommy, he has bigger hands than I do. He's able to grab more. That statement about the size of his hands are a statement about his ability. Saying he has bigger hands than I have is her saying he's able to do more than I can do. Friends, God has bigger hands than you. God has bigger hands than me. God has bigger hands than all. God is able over all. How big are God's hands? Psalm 135 verse 6 says that God does whatever he wants in heaven and on earth, in the seas and the depths of his ocean, God is able to do whatever he wants. He has sovereign ability. He's got big hands. And what he's doing throughout this portion is he's stretching out those hands. He's exercising that sovereign ability. In short term, God responds to our deliberate disobedience by stretching out his hands. And there are three ways that he stretches out his hands in these six chapters. Uh, the first way that God stretches out his hands is he stretches out his hands to remind our heads. Uh, Restated, he stretches out his hands to inform our heads. So you'll see him through these chapters. He continually and constantly stretches out his hands and he exercises control over nature. He'll make the Nile River turn into blood. He'll make dust turn into gnats that, co- gnats that cover all of Egypt. He'll, he'll cut off the sunlight and the moonlight in the neighborhoods that are, that are Egyptian and leave it light in the, in the Hebrew neighborhoods. He's constantly exercising control over nature. And then he gives us his purpose statement multiple times. He says, I'm stretching out my hands. Here's why. So that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord God. In Exodus chapter 9, he tells Pharaoh, I'm stretching out my hand against you so that you'll know that there's no one like me. God stretches out his hands to teach us that only God is God. Um, I wish I had a balloon here so I could give you a more specific picture. Um, Essentially what God's doing while he's stretching out his hand is he's deflating Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh, imagine I have a balloon, whatever color you want me to have in your hand, in my hand. So I had this balloon, this really pretty color, and it's real overinflated. Pharaoh, he, at some point, he got really full of himself. He got real overinflated to where he decided that he knew better than God knew. 
And throughout these nine plagues, God is consistently and constantly deflating Pharaoh and bringing Pharaoh low. Um, what we see happening in real time is each natural phenomena, um, it humbles the Egyptians and it humbles Pharaoh by bringing them down to being able to do nothing. So the Nile River is their main water source, and by making it turn into blood, God's forcing them to now try to dig holes along the Nile to find water somewhere. And Pharaoh was in his nice protected palace where he lived a different life than everybody, but then God floods Egypt with frogs that even fill Pharaoh's house, and he can do nothing about it. And then God cuts off sunlight and cuts off moonlight in a society where there's no electricity. So now these Egyptians are forced to sit at home and stare at each other. He completely brings them down to nothing. He's, 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 he's lowering them to showing, to show them that he's the most high God. He's deflating them. There might be times where we get kind of full of ourselves and think we know better than God and God will deflate you a little. I um this is before I met Chels, uh before I moved from here, from Lawton to here, there's this girl that I was dead set on marrying. Um I knew that I knew that I knew I was gonna marry this girl. Um I, I dedicated my, my my life to marrying this girl, so much so that my life went from Lord, I'm gonna follow you to Lord, this is where I'm going, follow suit. My my prayer life went from Lord, what do you want to Lord Join on board. This is what I'm doing. Make it happen. And there are times where God's direction would come to me from maybe counselors or mentors. And one would say, Jerron, you ought to be in church. And I'm thinking, no, I ought to be chasing this girl around. And one would say, Jerron, you ought to be reading your Bible. And I'd say, no, I ought to be writing love notes to this girl. And, and I'm consistently and constantly rejecting God's word to say, no, this is what I'm going to do. And 10 years later, I can tell you that it didn't work. I tried hard. We never went on a date. She never even said thank you for all the nice stuff. I talked to a mentor once and I was like, dude, what's happening, man? And he said, Jerron, maybe you've, this situation is becoming a situation that is getting you to challenge God's place in your life. And he's not having it. He said, maybe this breakdown is God's way of trying to break through to you. I think that might be what ha- might be what happens to some of us sometimes. Things might break down around us, and it might be way- God's way of trying to break through to us to say, "Hey, I'm here." You, you, you had dreams that you set yourself on. You've had a course of action that you dedicate yourself to. You have plans that you're so fixated on and nothing can get through to you, but it's not working. I'm not giving you a definite diagnosis because I'm not God, but I'm saying maybe, just maybe. All that might be breaking down and not working because God's trying to break through to you and say, hey, I'm here. I have stuff I want you to do. My mom used to come to me and tell me to do something and I'd argue with her and say, no, I'm going to do this. And she'd pause. She'd interrupt me right in the middle of my yelling and say, hey, hold on. I'm the mother. You're the child. You do what I say, not the other way around. I think when God, when he breaks things down and he reminds us, he, he says, hey, hold on. I'm the God. You're the human. You do what I say. Not the other way around. 
So, so he'll stretch his hand to remind us that God is God. Um, here's the second thing. God will stretch his hand to release our hearts. He'll stretch his hand to release our hearts. God says in this passage in Exodus 7 that we just read and throughout, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Um, we've got dic- uh, di- uh, definitions of a hardened heart. Um, the next slide says that a hardened heart in um, in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, it says that a hardened heart is the spiritual condition of persistent unresponsiveness to God and his word. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary says that a hard heart is the action or state of resistance to and rejection of the word and the will of God. A hardened heart is rejecting and resisting God, his word and his will. God said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Wait, God, God, you made Pharaoh resistant to you. And if that's not confusing enough, over the course of these three chapters, Moses says three times that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. He says three more times that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he says four times that Pharaoh's heart was just hardened and doesn't credit it to anybody. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God, why would you harden Pharaoh's heart if you did? First one, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Moses, was it God or was it Pharaoh that hardened Pharaoh's heart? Moses says, I said both of them did it because the answer is both of them. Both of them hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, then why would God do it? This man in Australia, Leon Morris, um, a Bible scholar, he says, nowhere in the scripture is God shown to harden the heart of someone who wasn't already hardened. Someone else pointed out to me this week that Pharaoh had a natural attitude and disposition that he had already displayed that was resistant of God. And as time carried on, God just fixed it. He made it permanent. He solidified it. Remember, this is Pharaoh who who doubled down on the slavery of the Egyptian people. This is Pharaoh in chapter 5 who said, no, I'm not going to do it. He was already resistant. And God said, fine. This reminds me of Romans 1. Does this remind you of Romans 1? Where Paul says there are people who don't acknowledge God. They don't thank God. They they get to a point where they want something else that's not God. So, so in discipline, God released them to the desires of their heart. What do God do to our deliver? How does God respond to our deliberate disobedience? After a while, he'll let you have what you want. I know this young cat, um, not me, um, but his father bought him a car right after he got his license. And his dad said, now, listen, this car has no tail lights. It's not ready to be driven. Give us some time to fix the car before you take it out. And he argued with his dad for days back and forth. He'd argued with his dad. I'm going to do it. Why can't I do it? I want to do it. My friends have cars. I've got my license. I'll be okay. Finally, one day his dad said, fine, take it, go ride. He left house at about 10 o'clock one night. He wasn't gone more than 15 minutes before he got pulled over and given a ticket. His dad disciplined him by letting him continue in his disobedience and deal with the consequences. After long enough, God will say, here, 
as a form of discipline here. Go down that path of disobedience that you just have to have and you can deal with the consequences on the other side. Some of us know what that's like. I can sit you down and tell you stories about homeboys I have who 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 just had to get in bed with someone who they ought not have gotten in bed with. And finally, God let them do it. And that relationship walked them right away from Jesus. I know people who 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 insisted on trying to follow Jesus apart from the people of Jesus. And they wrestled with God for long enough that finally God said, go, you can walk out the door. And they walked right out of life with God. On a smaller scale, we've all had specific moments, specific decisions where we know we're wrestling with God and finally says, do what you want. And we dealt with everything that came with it. I know deliberate disobedience might be a win in the now, but friends, that's a terrible long game to play. That's a loss tomorrow. One thing I've learned from my own life is that me being deliberately disobedient in one little area of my life, after long enough, it bleeds over into another area of my life and then another area of my life. And then I find my whole heart set in another direction. And this scripture seems to say that once your heart gets there, God's just here. But there's clarity in this. There, there, there's good news in this. There's a bit of encouragement in this because if 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 God gives us over and the and, and the freedom to go do something is a sign of God letting us go, that means the struggle to sin, the fact that you struggle to sin and the fact that you're still sensitive is a sign of God's mercy. It's a sign that he hasn't let you go. It's a sign that he says, I'm not letting you walk down that path. It's a sign that he's saying, no, you stay here with me. So, friends, I want to encourage you in your struggle and fight with this sin. That struggle and fight with sin is God saying, I'm not letting you go yet. But there's also some of us. It's gotten real easy to do some unquestionable stuff. And I'm just saying, maybe, just maybe. That ease and that clear conscience you have is not you walking in the grace of God that frees you from the law. That ease might be God having said, here, go ahead. So he'll stretch his hand to release our hearts. And here's the good news. This this is found in the whole of scripture. God will stretch his hand to restore our hearts. He'll stretch his hand to recreate our hearts. Yeah. I read this week that that birds, when they migrate south, no one has to tell them to migrate south. It's it's instinctual. It's innate. There's something within their hearts that just says, go that way. Friends, if you haven't picked it up yet, no one has to tell us to go in the opposite direction of God's direction. There's something instinctual within humanity. It's wired within us. It's natural that we go in the opposite direction. Not only do we have these natural inclinations, the society outside of us is forming us to live in an opposite direction of God. Society will say, I want you to listen to the deep voice of you deep down inside of you when you want to answer the question of who am i what's my identity you'll be taught just listen look deep inward what are you telling you 
you want to be and live that out. Or, 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 or I'm trying to build a moral framework, what's right and what's wrong in society will say, just look inside and listen to that voice of you that says this feels good and that doesn't feel good. And there's your moral framework. Follow your heart. And we get so fixated on listening to the voice of me that's deep down on the inside of me that we have no room. Our line's busy. God from the outside of us who's trying to call can't get through. I read someone this week that said, this passage in human history has shown us that we cannot save ourselves from this cycle of sin and being bent on going the other way. The only hope that we have is if God intervenes and if God helps and if God stretches his hands. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that God has stretched his hands and reversed the cycle. He not only stops you, he recreates you. He said in Ezekiel 36, I'm going to put my spirit in you. And when I put my spirit in you, I'm going to take that heart of stone, that hard heart out of you. And I'm going to put a heart of flesh, a soft heart in you. And that promise maker is a promise keeper. He sent Jesus who came, died, rose. And Paul says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, which means that promise of a soft heart is a yes to those who are in relationship with Jesus. The call is come to Christ for a soft heart. Some of us come to Christ for the first time. Confess who he is for a new heart. Not only come for the first time, keep coming back. Keep coming to him and saying, Lord, give me a soft heart. Friends, I try to pray this prayer at least one a week and I promise it works. He answers, give me a soft heart again. Give me a softer heart. And the last one is come to Christ's community. Uh, The author of Hebrews, he says, he's talking about this whole hard-hearted thing. These are Christians, mind you, who are thinking about going the opposite direction of God's direction. And he exhorts them in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, as long as today is called today, exhort one another that none of you might be taken over by the deceitfulness of sin leading to a hard heart. This scripture personifies sin from Genesis all the way through. And whether you want sin to be a he or a she, there's one thing I know about this person that is sin. Sin's a deceiver. Sin's tricky. Sin will trick Adam and Eve into thinking that God didn't say what God said. Sin will trick me into thinking that God really agrees with me, not what he wrote in scripture. Sin will trick me into thinking that, no, this is actually good. Fight sin by yourself. You can't outsmart sin in isolation. That's why the author of Hebrews says, I want you to exhort one another. I want you to constantly push one another. Here it is. I want you to bug one another about being obedient to God's word. I want you to bug each other so that you won't be deceived by this thing. I'll tell you, I've had friends who have challenged me and bugged me about God's word. Friends, it was so annoying. But it's life-giving. And I've been a friend who's failed to bug a friend. And instead of exhorting him one day, the next day I found myself trying to evangelize him back to Jesus. We don't want that to happen in this community. 
We want to be those who say, no, no, I'm going to keep bugging you. I'm going to stay in your ear. I'm going to keep checking. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep pushing and exhorting you to live the way God wants you to live because I am not letting you fall into hard heartedness. Let's keep coming. We need each other. So my prayer, I've been praying for us this week, is that God would constantly and continually stretch his arm out. That he would, he, he would, he would show you in your head that he is God. And that he would constantly recre- recreate your heart. I want to pray that for us. Stand up with me. Hey, we've got a text number. Can you throw that on the screen? The text number. We've got a text number. Um, if you're not part of a church, if you don't know Jesus, if you've walked away from Jesus, um, felt you've drifted from Jesus, would love for you to text this number um, and we'll reach out to you, have a phone conversation, meet up in person. We'd love to talk with you about Jesus and um, life in his church. Um, Father, we thank you. Thank you for your mercy that you that you don't let us drift off in our own sin, but you do stretch your arm out. You do stretch your arm to remind us of who you are. You do stretch your arm out to, to, to mercifully hold on to us. You do stretch your arm out to soften our hearts. So we thank you. And we ask that you do it again. Remind us of who you are. Yes. Elijah prayed earlier, con- confront us with who you are. Yeah. And renew our hearts. Recreate our hearts. Soften our hearts more than they were before. We want to be responsive to you and we want to be welcoming of your word. We want to be, we want to delight in your ways. So soften our hearts. If there be any of us who are far from you, who's, who have never turned to you, call them to you, Father. Call them to you. Give them a new heart. Grip their hearts. We love you. Amen.